no comments. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard in Los Angeles, up on the Oregon Central Coast, 91.7 FM KYAQ, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app. On iTunes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroot Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another uh, thrilling adventure, and it is a thrilling adventure. To Well, I guess it depends on your definition of thrill. Uh, coming up momentarily, we now have a verdict in the, uh, in the Wisconsin John Doe 2 case. And actually, it's the challenge to the John Doe 2 case. Uh, this is the case where um, Scott Walker is uh, Governor Scott Walker, now uh, presidential, now leading presidential candidate Scott Walker, um, was charged with uh, being involved in essentially a criminal scheme, according to prosecutors, to collude with uh, right wing organizations during his uh, 2012 recall election in order to uh, direct money to those groups in order to plan their campaign, all in violation of Wisconsin law, Wisconsin campaign finance law. But the uh, the right wing groups involved in this matter have uh, have challenged even the investigation. They have challenged the subpoena. This has gone all the way up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which happens to be stacked with a whole bunch of judges, justices, I should say. Maybe we need to start putting justice in quotes there. But a whole bunch of justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court that uh, their elections were also funded by these very same groups who are being investigated and who are now trying to stop the investigation. Well, we now have a verdict in this case, and it is absolutely stunning. We're going to speak with Brendan Fisher of Wisconsin's Center for Media and Democracy about that momentarily. So uh, you will not want to miss that interview. We have a verdict as we go to air in the uh, in the shooting, the massacre, the Colorado movie massacre trial in Aurora, Colorado. After the second day of deliberations in the case of 27 year old gunman James Holmes, he has pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Holmes's court appointed attorney says he suffers schizophrenia that since high school he has heard voices ordering him to kill. Uh, and that he was not in control of his actions when he killed 12 people and wounded 70 as they watched a midnight premiere of a Batman film in 2012. We now have, uh, he's facing 165 counts 
Those counts, uh, the verdict is now beginning to come in. He has been found guilty of first-degree murder, which means he will now face the death penalty in this case. Um, if, uh, if jurors return a guilty verdict, which they have on any of these murder charges, a, pen- a penalty phase will begin shortly, during which prosecutors would present aggravating evidence to make their case for the death penalty, their case to kill him. The defense team would argue in turn that there were mitigating factors and they would argue against execution. And uh, if Holmes is convicted of first degree murder in this case, as he now has been, then the decision to spare his life in the penalty phase would result in a mandatory life sentence without the possibility of parole. So that looks like what uh, James Holmes will now be facing, a choice between uh, being executed by the government, executed by the state, or facing life in prison without the possibility of parole. Actually, uh, in in this case, I believe he'd be facing life in uh, an an insane, uh, they don't call them insane asylums anymore, but a, a mental hospital of some sort for the rest of his life without the possibility of being freed. Sounds good to me. That's uh, a lot cheaper than putting him to death. A lot more humane, a lot more moral. Would make me feel better about my country rather than having the government uh, kill its own citizens. In any event, that's where we are in that case at this moment. But we've got some more breaking news. Today happened uh, a gunman killed four Marines on Thursday in attacks on two military facilities in Chattanooga, Tennessee. A police officer and a Marine recruiter were also injured in the rampage. The gunman was killed after a shootout with police at the second of the two facilities. It was not immediately clear whether police killed him or he killed himself. A lot of a lot of confusion coming out of this uh, out of this story today. Uh, several different sites on lockdown. Talk of uh, more than one uh, shooter. According to authorities, now it was a single shooter at both facilities, and the gunman has now been identified by a uh, senior federal official uh, as Muhammad Youssef Abdulaziz. He is a naturalized U.S. citizen from Kuwait. Authorities offered no immediate information on a motive in this case. But Bill Killian, the top federal prosecutor for Eastern Tennessee, said the attack was being investigated as an act of domestic terrorism. Well, certainly sounds like uh, that uh, was likely the case. You've got a man from the Middle East. You've got two marine facilities here. The shootings began at uh, at first at a military recruitment station and then at a Naval and Marines Reserve Center. A defense official said the gunman used an automatic weapon, didn't say semi-automatic, but an automatic weapon. Where did this uh, man, if in fact uh, he's guilty, uh, where did he get this weapon? How did that come about? We'll find out in the days ahead. The Marines were killed at the Marine Reserve Center. The gunman fired 25 to 30 rounds at the recruitment station. According to a U.S. military official, the doors were riddled with bullet holes today. So this person was able to fire 25 to 30 rounds at the station. James Holmes in Aurora, Colorado, Colorado in 2012 was able to get off uh, at least 70 rounds, hundreds of rounds. 
he had ordered uh, thousands of pounds of, uh, of of bullets of ammunition off the internet. It was delivered to his house at uh, by FedEx. Nobody ever interceded. We'll find out what happened in the uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee case. A uh, uh, obviously a tragic case. Authorities say they have no reason to believe that anyone else was involved in the shooting. Nonetheless. You heard an official right off the bat describing it as domestic terrorism. They also said there was no intelligence indicating that the atta- indicating the attack ahead of time. That means that all of your uh, phone calls and emails, uh, the data from those uh, calls for years and years that are so important that the NSA uh, listened to all of them, collect all of them. Once again, they did nothing to stop this particular attack. But again, the thing that jumped out at me was that you've got this uh, this top prosecutor saying right off the bat that this was an act of domestic terrorism, presumably because it was uh, a man from the Middle East involved here, though he was a U.S. citizen and an attack on a Marine base. It sounds uh, perfectly reasonable that you would investigate this case as an act of domestic terrorism. But for weeks and this is what I don't understand, Desi Doyen. Hi, Desi. Hi. Um, our producer, Desi Doyen. Uh, what I don't understand is why you've got James Comey, the head of the FBI, who still will not regard what happened at the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, as an act of terrorism. Um, I, I believe the local U.S. prosecutor has done so. I'm I'm certain that the uh, attorney general has done so, has said that this is uh, likely an act of terrorism in uh, South Carolina. But the the head of the FBI has not and has not weeks after this thing happened, weeks after it was clear that he chose specifically the AME church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, in order to. Uh, target this uh, this place that had been at the center of the civil rights movement for so many decades after it was clear that he was uh, a white supremacist after it was clear that he left one of his victims alive uh, at least according to reports left one victim alive so that the story could be told of what happened here clearly meant to terrorize the community and yet, with all of that information, the head of the FBI, by the way, a former Republican appointee, the head of the FBI, he's still not sure, doesn't know if, uh, if this is terrorism or not. But here in the very few minutes after this tragic shooting down in, uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, authorities are already saying, yeah, act of domestic terrorism. Well, there's a clear difference. What's the clear between difference? Between the two. Well, the shooter in South Carolina was yeah. white. Uh, yeah. Well, Therefore, it cannot be domestic right. terrorism. Or at least it could maybe. It must not be. We'll oh, find some other reason. For right. It, and right? also, you know, the location. It yeah. was a black church. I mean, you can burn down a black church and they won't call it domestic terrorism. You can shoot people and murder them at a domestic at a, at a church, a black church. And that's not terrorism. But, you know, if you go to a an army base or military base and you attack them there, that. See, that's a totally different thing. Apparently I don't understand so. what you're not seeing. Well, yeah, well, uh, apparently Obviously. so, because that's what they came out and said immediately. And I suspect, again, I suspect they're right. I'm not saying that this uh, is not a case of domestic terrorism. Right. But I'm saying so is the case of uh, Darren Roth in, in Charleston, Carol- uh, South Carolina. In any event, um, 
Boy, neither you or you. You're you sound a little angry, Desi Doyen. I'm a little angry, and uh, I'll tell you why I'm a little angry. I'm a little angry because of this verdict that has come out of Wisconsin today, which is just remarkable, and not just for Wisconsin, but for the entire nation. If you want to know where our country is going, where our election system, our campaign finance system is going, you need to pay attention to what happened in Wisconsin today. I'm going to help you pay attention to what happened in Wisconsin today. I've been talking about it for a long time, uh, and, and well, now you will see. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back with Brandon Fisher from the Center for Media and Democracy. Prepare to be outraged. Prepare to be outraged more than you think you will be outraged. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please stay tuned. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with the donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, just over one year ago on this program, as, uh, as this case was making its way towards the Wisconsin Supreme Court, we told you about an ongoing corruption investigation against Scott Walker and right-wing groups up in Wisconsin. These right-wing groups were supporting him. Uh, during his uh, recall campaign back in 2012. And this case charged that the Republican Wisconsin governor, who is now a frontrunner for the 2016 presidential nomination, ran a criminal scheme, or at least was involved in a, quote, criminal scheme by coordinating his 2012 re-election campaign with about a dozen outside groups. As we took pains to uh, point out at the time, the case we believed was and still is about much more than just Scott Walker and his corruption, frankly. Uh, rather, as I wrote at the time, this case could very well be the last piece of whatever is left of our campaign finance laws to fall in the wake of 2010's Citizens United and 2014's McCutcheon rulings by the U.S. Supreme Court. If the challenge by Walker and his cronies to this case, a case which is being brought by a Republican prosecutor in Wisconsin, if that challenge is successful, there may be nothing left, by and large, that keeps candidates from blatantly coordinating with and, and putting unlimited, undisclosed millions to work in buying our elections, along with these supposedly outside support groups. In short, as I discussed with the Center for Media, Media and Democracy's general counsel at the time, Brendan Fisher, back in June of 2014, 
democracy could well become even more hosed than it is already in this country. Well, guess what? That case, that case indeed made its way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and Walker's million-dollar friends seeking to toss out the investigation and potential prosecution against them has now been decided as of this morning. Those groups and Walker were challenging the investigation. Here now to tell us what the Wisconsin Supremes ruled and why is once again Brendan Fisher from Wisconsin Center for Media and Democracy. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brendan. All right. Thanks for having me, Brad. All right. Uh, so you were on the show. You were on the show about a week or two ago when Walker and Republicans in the state legislature tried to sneak in a provision to the state budget over the July 4 holiday weekend that would have gutted the state's excellent Open Records Act uh, that has been so helpful, frankly, in informing the public about the inside machinations of the uh, of Scott Walker, uh, a bunch of his felonious top officials, etc. Happily, thanks to work by you and others in Wisconsin, that terrible provision was removed before the budget was finally passed. But uh, and in time to keep that important law, I should add, on the books during Scott Walker's 2016 presidential run. But now now we've finally got this decision from the Wisconsin Supreme Court today concerning this other matter related to Walker's coordination with right wing groups during his 2012 recall election. Uh, so thank you for coming back so quickly to discuss it. What is this case about specifically? And then we can get into why it may be so important uh, for the entire country as, as well as the breathtaking conflicts of interest that just blow me away related to the uh, right-wing uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court justices who decided this case. So what was this case about specifically, if you could explain that, Brendan? Sure. Uh, well, so this is an investigation that started uh, well over a year ago, actually about two years ago at this mm -hmm. point. Um, it was it was a look into whether Walker's campaign coordinated with outside groups during the, the 2012 recall elections. Uh, and the reason that coordination matters is because uh, there are limits on how much you can give to a candidate, and there's a requirement that anything you give to a candidate has to be disclosed. And the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and other courts and decisions like Citizens United said that as long as you're doing something independently, uh, independent groups like PACs or Super PACs, you can accept unlimited donations, uh, and in some cases those donations can be can be kept secret or they are they are being kept secret. But you can, uh, but and, you can, you have to be a separate group. So uh, I can set yeah. up uh, Brad's uh, organization for democracy. I can collect as much money essentially as I want to fight for democracy. But what I cannot do is coordinate with a candidate who is running for office. I can't have my group and this candidate uh, coordinate and commingle funds, et cetera. Correct? That, that's exactly right. And okay. that's an essential element. I mean, that's an essential, that was an essential part of the reasoning uh, for the U.S. Supreme Court in, in decisions like Citizens United, that mm -hmm. the fact that the independence of these groups means that there's less risk of corruption with unlimited donations and perhaps even, even secret donations. And what mm -hmm. Walker did was basically throw that out the window uh, and work directly with outside groups, raise money uh, from donors around the country, uh, getting million-dollar donations from uh, Paul Singer, or $250,000 donation from Paul Singer, $1 million donation from uh, Stephen Cohen of SAC Capital, um, raised millions for Wisconsin Club for Growth, a 501c4 nonprofit that kept all of its, all of its donors secret. 
and he was he was caught. Uh, prosecutors gathered evidence of Walker raising money for these groups, promising them that uh, promising donors that the the contributions would not be disclosed. Uh, to even telling corporations that they could donate directly to this group and support the recall effort uh, without any disclosure. Uh, and the defense that they that they raised against this was that there was no laws broken because the ads that were run, the coordinated ads that were run, uh, stopped short of saying vote for or vote against the candidate. So okay. these, just because they, they omitted those words, it was all perfectly okay, and incredibly, the court went along with it. Uh, and and so, again, just to clarify, because this is a really important point, not just for uh, Wisconsin, but for the entire country. So, Scott Walker, what you're saying, Brendan Fisher, is that he helped raise money. He said uh, the, these these people that you named, these, these right-wing funders uh, that put in a million dollars, they can't, they're not allowed because of... Uh, election law to give a million dollars directly to a candidate uh, like Scott Walker. But Scott Walker in this case said, well, you can't give me a million dollars because that violates campaign finance law to give me that much. However, you can give it to this group over here. They're swell. They're they're terrific. Wisconsin Club for Growth. Uh, they're wonderful. Give your million dollars over to them. Is that what what happened in this case? Uh, yeah, that's right. Now, there's actually a slight caveat. Because this was a recall election, mm-hmm. because these were recalls, uh, Walker could accept unlimited unlimited contributions directly to his campaign. And in some ways, that makes what he did even more pernicious, because he didn't have the excuse that he was he was limited by, by contribution mm-hmm. limits. The only reason uh, to ask donors to give to Wisconsin Club for Growth is to avoid public scrutiny for secrecy, um, which is probably the same reason that he's, tried, he's been trying to gut the open records law, uh, to avoid public accountability uh, for for his actions. Because if these guys, if these donors had given the money directly to him, it would have it had to have been disclosed. But if they give it to these uh, these shady nonprofit groups, those nonprofit groups don't disclose the names of the donors. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and by working with by working directly with this group, uh, he even told donors that that Wisconsin Club for Growth was his 501c4. Uh, by working directly with this group, it was clear that the expenditures were going to benefit Walker, uh, and it was clear to the donors that they were going to be buying gratitude with Walker by, by donating to Wisconsin Club for Growth. And that would be a violation of law, except now these guys, uh, the Wisconsin Club for Growth and these other uh, groups, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, uh, uh, there was a, a whole bunch of, of, of these uh, right-wing groups that were created, essentially, uh, to support Walker and, and, and so forth. But... They're saying that what they did was perfectly legal. There should be no investigation here whatsoever because we did not expressly advocate for Scott Walker. So going back to my uh, Brad Friedman's uh, uh, Club for Democracy, uh, I, I receive all of this money because a candidate has said, hey, go give it to Brad and you won't have to disclose your name and you won't have to be embarrassed by being, uh, uh, you know, related to me in any way. Uh, so Brad Friedman's uh, Club for Democracy, as long as I go on the air with commercials that don't explicitly say vote for against Scott Walker, then I can do whatever I want. I can go on and on about how his uh, uh, opponent's record is just terrible. I can talk about how wonderful Scott Walker is and how he has descended from the heavens and he's a terrific guy. But as long as I don't say vote for Scott Walker or vote against who he's running with, then it's just free speech 
and it's nobody's damn business uh, how I spend my money or what I do. Is is that the argument that they were making here? That is right. That is the argument that they that they were making, and that despite you know a 1999 Wisconsin Court of Appeals decision that said the exact opposite, and despite a advisory opinion from the state elections board saying the exact opposite, that, that an issue ad, that it doesn't matter whether you say vote for or vote against, if it's a coordinated expenditure, uh, if you're coordinating with outside groups, that has to be counted as a, as a contribution to your campaign and, and disclosed. And and I'm speaking with Brendan Fisher from Wisconsin Center for Media and Democracy. And uh, by the way, the things we're talking about so far, you haven't even heard the half of it. So just hang in there. Now, um, uh, we're going to get to the justices and this decision in a second. So those groups are making that argument uh, that uh, nobody should be investigating us at all because we didn't do anything wrong. The prosecutor appears to have them dead to rights that they were coordinating with Scott Walker, that Scott Walker was coordinating with them, that this would be a violation of Wisconsin election laws and common sense, uh, but but for the fact that they're not express advocacy uh, rules. So then they go to the courts and eventually now to the Supreme Wisconsin Supreme Court, and um, it's not even about whether they did it or not. It's it's about the prosecutor is not allowed to investigate us because there's no underlying crime here. And and so throw out the case, throw out all the subpoenas. We shouldn't have to turn over the documents the prosecutor wants to look at. Was that ultimately the decision that was made today by the Wisconsin Supreme Court? Yeah, that's that's right. So the um, so the court was was really asked whether whose whose interpretation of Wisconsin campaign finance law was was correct. So despite. Uh, despite this 1999 Wisconsin Court of Appeals decision, despite this elections board ruling that's been on the books for a long time, uh, the court, and despite no federal or state court, uh, to my knowledge, ever having endorsed this sort of this sort of view of campaign finance laws, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court said that anything that does not expressly call for uh, the election or defeat of a candidate is entirely beyond the reach of Wisconsin campaign finance law. Uh, an issue ad group can work hand in glove with the candidate, uh, and it's all perfectly it's all perfectly acceptable. It's all first it's it's all free speech. It's all protected by by the First Amendment. And, and surely the Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court uh, justices, uh, in their esteemed decision, taking a look at all of the information in this case. Surely they didn't go along with that scheme. Surely they saw through it. Surely they saw that this was blatant coordination and that it was in violation of uh, finance laws as found by the, uh, what is it, the Government Accountability Board that oversees elections, uh, the, the state courts and so forth. Surely they didn't go along with these arguments from these right-wing groups and Scott Walker, right? Well, in fact, they did. And, uh, and I think a big part of that, in addition to the Wisconsin Supreme Court being very partisan uh, and the court's uh, four-justice conservative majority, um, oftentimes aligning themselves with the, uh, with the positions of, uh, of, of Republicans, um, these justices were elected by the exact same groups that are under investigation. So the groups, Wisconsin Club for Growth and Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, are among the biggest spenders on Wisconsin Supreme Court elections, uh, they spent $10 million uh, in recent years electing the four justices in the majority. Uh, and these 
exact same group were parties to the case. They were the ones bringing the challenge yes. to these rules. Uh, and, and there was a recusal motion filed by the special prosecutor, who, who in fact is a Republican. The Republican special prosecutor filed a motion for recusal uh, for at least two of the justices, uh, but they, they, they declined to recuse themselves. Uh, and they issued a decision that that directly affected their biggest supporters. And this is uh, just almost the most astounding part to me. The uh, the judges, the justices, I should say, on the Wisconsin Supreme Court are elected. They're elected by the people. They're not appointed. Um, you know, which already, if you look at the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously that leads to some partisanship as it is because you're. Uh, you know, appointed by one president or another of one party or another. But here you've got you've got these justices that are actually facing election and they come up for how, how frequently do they come up for election, uh, Brendan? Uh, they are 10 year terms, 10 year terms, 10 year terms. All right. So uh, and the uh, the Journal Sentinel, I, I, I just want to give some of these numbers um, because you're right. In February, the special prosecutor in this case, who is a Republican, by the way, the special prosecutor asked that one or more justices drop out of the, the cases here, presumably because they have benefited from spending by the Wisconsin Club for Growth and Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, etc. And then they give some of the numbers. For example, the Wisconsin Club for, Club for Growth is estimated to have spent four hundred thousand dollars for Justice Ziegler's election in 2011. 507000 over half a million dollars, for Judge Gableman in 2008. $520,000 for Justice David Prosser in 2011, a very controversial election, I should say, and $350,000 for Justice Rogensack in 2013, uh, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce uh, spent an es- they spent an estimated 2.2 million for Ziegler, 1.8 million for Gableman, 1.1 million for Prosser, and half a million for Rogensack. In addition, Citizens for a Strong America, another group, a group funded entirely by the Wisconsin Club for Growth, Club for Growth, spent an estimated $985,000 to help David Prosser. And uh, readers of Bradblog.com will remember the controversial 2011 election uh, for David Prosser, said to have been won by that Republican over his independent challenger, Joanne Kloppenberg, by just 7,000 votes. And purportedly, there was a lot of irregularities uh, that we wrote about that we covered uh, uh, for months and months after that election. Uh, But this is the kind of money that these uh, justices get in their elections. And now these very same justices have, we're all shocked to learn, decided on behalf of those very same groups that funded them. And they gave no reason uh, why they didn't uh, view that as a conflict of interest, why they did not recuse themselves, although uh, one justice did. One justice did uh, uh, recuse herself from the case. Um, do you have the, uh, her name there, uh, Brenda? Um, yeah, Justice Bradley, and she, and she did so for an entirely separate reason um, and for a, for, for a much lower level of, level of conflict than the justices that didn't recuse themselves. Uh, right. she, she recused herself because one of the parties to the case uh, the attorney for one of the parties to the case was in a law firm with her with her son, uh, 
and you know that's that's a few steps removed, but she tries to apparently tries to adhere to a pretty high standard when it comes to recusal. Um, and unfortunately, none of the other justices joined her, uh, you know, joined her in recusing themselves. Um, but you know, I think you know those, those numbers that you cited are, uh, I think. I found internal documents from WMC, and I think the numbers are actually actually a little bit a little bit higher. Um, but I think that the key the key here, particularly for Justice Prosser, who won by seven thousand votes, and Justice Gableman, who won by twenty twenty thousand votes, is that those two justices can can very clearly attribute their seat on the bench to the to the same groups that are party to this case without the. Uh, mm-hmm. About five million in spending, I believe, uh, from WMC and Wisconsin Club for Growth. Uh, these justices would not be would not be on the bench. These were very close races. The amount of money spent by these groups was significant and disproportionate, uh, and, and disproportionate both to the justices' own campaigns and in relation to to other groups. And they so were the, they it, were the plaintiffs, right? They were the named Wisconsin Club for Growth, WMC, uh, Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce. They were actually the movements in this case, the people who brought this case to the Supreme Court that they quite literally br- bought with millions yeah, of dollars. Yeah, no, this was not something where the decision would affect them indirectly, uh, or where they would benefit from it in some way, they were these, these groups, the exact same groups that spent millions of dollars elect, helping elect the court's conservative majority, uh, were parties to this case. They were asking, and they were asking the court to rule in precisely the way that they did. Um, you know, and the other, what what I think is even more shocking about this is this is not only about about past conduct. This is about future conduct as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the, you know, as we discussed, the court has okayed, uh, okayed coordination between outside groups and candidates. And that not only applies to candidates for governor or the state legislature, it applies to their own campaigns. It applies to uh, elections for, for judges. So the, these conservative justices are now in a position to coordinate directly with Wisconsin Club for Growth and Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce when they're up for re-election. Yep. Um, so the exact same groups that spent millions of dollars helping these justices get elected and the exact same groups that were parties to this case uh, are going to be able to coordinate directly with uh, these, can't, these, these justices when they're up for re-election. Um, and you know, and because because the court ruled that issue ads are entirely outside of uh, entirely outside of the, the scope of Wisconsin campaign finance law, that means justices can basically do whatever they want with these groups. Uh, they can your justices are unable to solicit donations in Wisconsin, uh, and there was a U.S. Supreme Court decision on this recently that that held that judicial solicitation for uh, for contributions are limits on judicial solicitation for contributions are uh, are constitutional. Um, but now, when Justice Prosser is up for wait, wait, are are, con- are, are are constitutional oh, limits on the the justices seeking these funds? Those limits are constitutional, right? Yes, that's okay. right. That's right. So that was a Florida a Florida case just a few months ago. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court held that uh, limits. Prohibit, prohibiting justices from soliciting donations to their campaigns is constitutional. Um, it's a constitutional means of preventing corruption or the appearance of corruption in the, the judicial process. Um, well, they don't have to now, solicit. Now they can give to, I mean, they can just give. They know who to, uh, they know which justices to buy at this point. They don't even have to well, solicit. That's, but, that's, uh, 
but that's what makes this, that's what I think makes this even more shocking. So not only can the justices campaign coordinate with a group like Wisconsin Club for Growth, the justices can directly solicit donations to Wisconsin Club for Growth. They can do like what Walker did. They can go to Paul Singer or, uh, you know, any, any billionaire who wants something from the court who, who might have business before the court and ask them for a million-dollar donation to this nonprofit group that they're working with, and it would all be entirely secret. There would be no no disclosure whatsoever, um, as long as they ran ad, as long as they coordinated over ads, and as long as the donor contributed towards ads that stopped short of saying vote for or vote against. Because again, <laughs> the impact of this, this decision is that issue ads are entirely beyond the reach of Wisconsin campaign finance law. Uh, this is this is just this blows my mind, and it, it feels like. It cannot stand. And I'm going to talk about I want to ask you about the, the the future, you know, where this case goes from here and where this decision goes from here, you know, as it leaves Wisconsin and affects uh, races across the country. But the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled in 2009 Caperton versus Massey that judges must recuse themselves from cases involving a party that had a, quote, significant and disproportionate influence on their elections. Obviously, these groups who were asking, uh, you know, the, 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 Supreme, the Wisconsin Supreme Court to throw out their case clearly had a significant and disproportionate influence on their elections because they gave them literally millions of dollars. I mean, what possible explanation to these justices, these four justices, uh, uh, conserv- so-called conservative justices, what explanation can they possibly have for not recusing themselves in this case? And I should add, uh, Brendan, the um, the justice you mentioned earlier, who did recuse herself, Justice Bradley, she was one of the liberals on the uh, on on the court. Her her son, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, had worked at the law firm that one of the prosecutors had worked at. Uh, so she so the liberal went ahead and 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 dropped out. But what possible reason could these four? Republican conservative justices possibly give this significant and disproportionate influence on their elections. What am I missing here, Brendan? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the other piece of this is that the the court did adopt recusal rules, uh, I believe, back in 2010, following that Caperton v. Massey case that you mentioned. Um, and those rules uh, were were very weak. They said that that the the fact of a campaign contribution or independent expenditure does not require that a candidate or that a that a that a judge, justice recused themselves, um, but and those rules were actually written by WMC, which, yes. as we discussed, is a party to this case, uh, allegedly coordinated with Walker and spent millions of dollars electing the courts, elect helping elect the courts majority. Jesus. Uh, but but there's still you know there still are constitutional constraints on this. Uh, there's the Caperton v. Massey case from just a few years ago from the same U.S. Supreme Court that decided Citizens United uh, that said that, you know, there, there, basically there is a higher standard for justices. There's a higher standard for uh, for judges. Um, but it was not applied. But, 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 but it was not applied here, Brendan. I mean, that's what I'm, I, I don't understand. They decided this, ju- this U.S. Supreme Court in 2009, uh, they must recuse with significant and disproportionate influence on their elections. These justices did not. I mean, is that grounds for now challenging this decision at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, for now bringing that to the U.S. Supreme Court? Because this seems so blatant to me. I don't understand how they could not recuse themselves on the basis of this 2009 U.S. Supreme Court case. 
yeah, I think that there's certainly there certainly are grounds, um, you know, and, and I can't I can't say for sure whether it is going to be appealed, but there was a recusal motion filed uh, mm-hmm. and it was denied, uh, so it does appear that there there would be there would be grounds or there would be a basis for appealing this up to the U.S. Supreme Court and asking and demanding that these justices uh, recuse themselves. Uh, but I, I can't say for sure if that's going to happen. But but there certainly are are there is a basis for for doing that. Is, is the only justification for not doing that because they will say that these groups who gave us these millions of dollars for our election, uh, you know, in support, they didn't. Again, going back to where we started here, they didn't. It wasn't express advocacy. They didn't say vote for David Prosser. They just said David Prosser is uh, the most fantastic thing uh, to ever come to Wisconsin. He will save us. And Joanne Kloppenberg is a, uh, a leftist uh, uh, communist who hates America. Have a nice day. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, the, that's the, it? the court. The court is pretty notorious. The Wisconsin Supreme Court is pretty notorious for its lax recusal practices and. Uh, they, they looked for ways to distinguish what was the, the facts in the Caperton v. Massey case with the immediate facts here. Um, but, but as you mentioned, I mean, they were in a little bit of a, of a catch-22 situation because if, as, uh, as they ruled and as they were being asked to rule, uh, issue ads are beyond the scope of Wisconsin election law and have nothing to do with, have nothing to do with elections whatsoever. They're really just about educating the public about issues. Um, then there was no potential for corruption or conflict of interest because the, the millions that were spent that were spent supporting these justices in their campaign uh, never said vote for or vote against. So it it was a little bit of a catch twenty two situation. But that situa- but that vote for or for vote against that underscores uh, the problem here, because this is not just going to affect Wisconsin. And this, I believe, by the way, was one of the reasons these uh, these right wing groups wanted to bring the case. They really wanted to bring the case and get a decision that they could coordinate any way they wanted, as long as it wasn't, you know, express advocacy. I believe because they want to see the same thing happen in elections all over the country, and. Uh, does this decision now open the door to this exact same thing happening all over uh, all over the country? Uh, you know, or can the U.S. Supreme Court step in and say, well, no, that's this is a bridge too far or will. The, I mean, I, where does this go from here? Let me put that question that way, Brendan. Sure. Well, I, I think this. Well, first of all, you are right that this was the, the groups that were bringing this case, the individuals that were involved, that were the driving force behind this case, uh, have been trying to use it to strike down campaign finance laws around the country. Um, mm-hmm. Eric O'Keefe, who's been the most outspoken critic of this, who's mm-hmm. been uh, filing lawsuits left and right in both state and federal court trying to stop this probe, uh, he's he's a, a longtime associate of the Koch brothers going back to the... Uh, uh, early 1980s. He's a founding member or a founding board member of the Center for Competitive Politics, which is one of the groups that argues against any campaign finance regulation whatsoever. Um, so he, he did see this as an opportunity to, to strike down more uh, campaign finance laws in Wisconsin. And O'Keefe and his allies uh, in the anti-campaign finance reform movement uh, are certainly going to try to use this to argue against uh, any campaign finance regulation whatsoever, and they've drummed up this idea that uh, that that this was a partisan witch hunt, that it was a Democrat-led witch hunt against Republicans, and as retaliate, and it was the use. And the problem with this is that uh, by by a Republican was, prosecutor, but by yeah, a go Republican ahead, prosecutor, which they which they conveniently omit, um, and they try and frame this as 
campaign finance laws uh, are rife for abuse by 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 overzealous partisans. And this, uh, what's happened here, is an example of why we shouldn't have any campaign finance laws whatsoever. The, uh, the over some traction in the on the in the conservative media and in right wing media. Uh, but it, but the facts just don't support the assertions that they've been making. The the overzealous partisans that you're talking that they're talking about is not them. They're saying that the people trying to stop them from doing anything they want that those are the overzealous partisans, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it doesn't. It's not supported by the facts in this uh, in this case. Wow. I mean, this has been a Republican. Uh, it's been a genuinely bipartisan investigation from the beginning, and in some ways that that underscores the. Uh, the severity of the allegations and the severity of the of the law violations, or at least the law violations as uh, uh, as viewed prior to today, um, you know, this is this was this included the participation of Republican and Democratic uh, district attorneys from across the state, and it was it was led by an appointed special prosecutor who has long been a Republican, and included the participation of the nonpartisan. Government Accountability Board, mm-hmm. um, and it involved uh, the highest profile, most powerful politician in Wisconsin. So it was not something that this was not something that would have been undertaken lightly, particularly by Republican district attorneys to launch an investigation against the highest ranking Republican and the most powerful politician in the state, uh, and the, and the most high, the most high profile uh, Wisconsin politician in, in decades. You know that was not an investigation that was undertaken lightly. Um, it was it was undertaken because there there was serious allegations and serious evidence uh, of Wisconsin campaign finance law being being violated. And I don't even know how uh, prosecutors in the future in Wisconsin and and then ultimately in all the other states can even investigate uh, campaign finance violations at all in the future if you know they can't look into these cases where they have found where they have reason to believe there is actually. Uh, criminal coordination. So now we wait for the prosecutors uh, to decide what they're going to do, if they're going to bring it to the, I guess that's the only place they can go at this point, is to the U.S. Supreme Court. Seems like there's two issues. One about uh, the recusal, and did they these justices inappropriately not recuse themselves from this case, given they took all of this money from the plaintiffs in this case. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the, the First Amendment issues, uh, the, this this fiction about, uh, you know, express advocacy ads. We didn't say vote for or against. So, gosh, who who knows? We're just a social welfare organizations trying to educate the public. That's the fiction they are all now playing on. That's the same fiction that is happening at the Federal Elections uh, Commission in another case uh, that Karl Rove and his uh, Crossroads GPS is is facing. And. You know, I'm I'm not uh, prone towards being overly dramatic in these matters, but it seems to me if something doesn't put an end to this, uh, just democracy is done as we know it in this country. I if if I mean this seems like the one of the last uh, chips to fall in this case. I am I overly dramatic, uh, Brendan, in this case. No, I don't think so. And I mean, it's been this is a, a big leap in the sort of incremental deterioration of of campaign finance law. And you see it. I mean, and you see each case building on itself. With Citizens United, they mm-hmm. struck down limits on independent groups, and then in McCutcheon, which dealt with uh, contribution to candidates, uh, Roberts said, "Well, why would anyone need to comply by 
aggregate limits when they can just give unlimited donations to a super PAC, which they had just opened the door to in the, in the previous campaign finance decision. Um, and you can see with, you know, with, with this particular ruling on the books, the one that came down today, um, and candidates able to coordinate directly with issue ag groups, you could see the next step being why have limits at all on contributions to candidates when uh, candidate can work when a donor can give directly to an issue ad group that uh, that doesn't have to disclose its donors and can accept unlimited donations. I mean, I think there's really not there's really not a whole lot left, and you can see this being a huge mile marker in the uh, continued erosion uh, on limits in money in politics. And politics. And this is it's not going to turn out well. Um, I mean, even just in this particular case, the evidence that's come out. Uh, has really been pretty damning. I mean, besides just the the, the long list of, of secret donations to Wisconsin Club for Growth that Scott Walker directly solicited, now, there's the evidence of the $700,000 donation from a mining company CEO mm-hmm. uh, that was never disclosed, never reported. And as soon as Walker was reelected in the recalls, uh, the mining bill that was desired by that mining company was Walker's top priority. Um, and they forced, it, they forced it through the legislature, Right, was pushed through the legislature, barely passed, and this huge public outcry from environmentalists mm-hmm. and native groups. And at the time that this, this huge piece of legislation was being hotly debated in the legislature, the public had no idea uh, that this mining company had given almost three-quarters of a million dollars yeah. to a group working directly with, with Walker's campaign. $700,000 uh, from Gogebic Taconite. Uh, and and they gave the money to Wisconsin Club for Growth. Wisconsin Club for Growth then helped Scott Walker get elected, and then uh, Scott Walker immediately works with the mining company who helped write this law to loosen environmental regulations. Uh, they worked together to pass that bill right after he was elected, and no one in Wisconsin ever knew about it, and we now learn it was all totally legal because there's not a damn thing that prosecutors can do uh, to, to investigate these sorts of cases. Uh, yeah. I, exactly, exactly, and, and that, I think that's a, that's a sample uh, of what uh, of what we can expect moving moving forward. Now that this this sort of coordination and this sort of secret fundraising is is deemed perfectly legal and protected by the First Amendment. Thanks for bringing uh, that terrible news, uh, Brendan Fisher. <laughs> From now on, I'm not going to promote that you're coming up on a future show because everybody will, uh, well, they'll either not listen or they'll just, uh, you know, throw themselves out a window knowing Brendan Fisher is coming back with more news. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you for uh, for helping us make sense of this senseless case, to be frank. And uh, I, I'm going I'm going to continue bothering you in the future about it because you're, you're, you're really helpful in making this clear. And I don't think the country understands how important this case is. I didn't think they understood it a year ago when, when you know, we started talking about it on the show and at bradblog.com. And, and I think people still don't understand the importance of this case, but I suspect they will uh, as things move forward and as this uh, either gets to the Supreme Court or other states make the very same challenge now that they've had this great news out of Wisconsin that they can do whatever they damn please when it comes to election uh, and and really quite literally buy any uh, elected official or justice, uh, which is amazing, uh, that they want. Uh, just amazing. Brendan Fisher, general counsel at the Wisconsin-based Center for Media and Democracy. Uh, you can check them out, and you should, at prwatch.org. 
Uh, Brendan, I, I want to say always great to have you here, but um, I, I'd be kind of lying if I said that. <laughs> well, well, it's nice to be here nonetheless. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Brendan. We will talk to you soon. Okay, a quick break. We're running late. What a surprise. We'll be back. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Welcome back to the Bradcast, our last few minutes here today. Uh, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Boy, I'll tell you, Desi Doyen, that uh, conversation with Brendan Fisher, you could probably tell it drives me absolutely nuts. And one of the things that drives me most nuts about it is not just what happened, but the fact that so few people even know about this. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things where you don't find out that everything has changed until you show up and uh, and you discover that, oh, they've done, gone and dismantled all the campaign finance laws yeah. that I wasn't looking. No, we won't. Yeah, most people won't hear about it until after this makes its way to the U.S. Supreme Court and is decided... That this is the way it should be, this is the way it's going to be across the entire country, across all 50 states, and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. The same way, you know, that they found out, most of the people found out about Citizens United right. and the McCutcheon case. You know, once it's too late to do anything about it. That's when you first hear about it, when you're, right. you know, in, in, and that's because of today's media as well, I think. I don't think that this particular decision is going to get any coverage whatsoever <laughs> on any of at least the major media that the majority of Americans will be listening to. Right, and well, and of course, you know, to some extent, it's understandable. We've got this uh, shooting that happened today terrible tragedy down yes, in uh, in tennessee you've got this uh, verdict in the uh, aurora colorado shooting and uh you know well you know what if it wasn't for all these goddamn shootings in this country maybe the Mar american people could find out more about what's actually going on in their country and the reason that we can't have that kind of gun safety uh, enforcement and, and increasing is because we can't get those people elected well, it's because of this system that's right exactly. i mean that's the catch-22 here that's the catch-22 that we have been spending years now more than a decade at bradblog.com trying to point out driving people crazy with Brad why are you always covering these elections why why do you give a damn about the voting machines why do you give a damn about the the campaign finance laws the voter suppression there's there's other things going on well yeah there are other things going on but they all come back to elections they all come back to democracy or the fight for the democracy and I mean I'm not you know I don't know maybe you think I was being dramatic when I said death of democracy uh, I no, I don't <laughs> think so at all I when, when and Brendan I think himself he said this is not going to turn out well that they are dismantling piece by piece incrementally I think is the word that he used incrementally dismantling dismantling all the campaign finance regulations that have been put into place to prevent the kind of corruption I mean, the blatant corruption that Scott Walker was demonstrating. You know, the mining company that paid for his uh, his campaign. Yeah. And he goes in, well, first sure. thing he goes in and gets mining legislation passed to benefit that company. The Supreme Court was so wrong, was so wrong on Citizens United, was so wrong on the Voting Rights Act. And Americans who sit back and say there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties, I'm not going to bother to vote uh, 
they they just ain't paying attention. They ain't listening to the Bradcast. They ain't reading the Bradblog.com, apparently. Because, yes, there is a difference. And none of that excuses Democrats. And I've got a story that I don't even have time to get to here about the obscene amount of money that Hillary Clinton has hauled in uh, in the first quarter of the or in, in the previous quarter here uh, since announcing that she was running for president from lobbyists. Almost all of her money comes from lobbyists. You know, uh, uh, between her and Jeb Bush and Bernie Sanders, guess who raised the most money from actual citizens in small donations? Bernie Sanders. But no, Hillary Clinton's a leading candidate. Jeb Bush is a leading candidate. Donald Trump, who can uh, fund himself, he's a leading candidate. Anyway, uh, we'll have to save that. Yeah. Pigs at the trough. Pigs at the trough. And guess who is on the menu? (laughs) There you go. Uh, yeah, and, and that menu uh, will continue tomorrow uh, unless there's more breaking news. Uh, we'll be hopefully talking to Ari Berman about this trial in North Carolina where the Republicans are once again trying to keep people from being able to vote at all. And that's what's going on here. This is not a, a, a difference in I- ideas. This is not a difference over policy. That death rattle you're hearing is the Republican Party trying to stay alive by any means necessary. That death rattle will continue tomorrow on the broadcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Brendan Fisher of Wisconsin Center for Media and Democracy, and, of course, to you, all of our affiliates and listeners, for spending part of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show and you want to hear that whole interview with Brendan Fisher... Stop on by bradblog.com where we will have it posted later on tonight uh, or go on over to iTunes and subscribe so you can get every show for free, commercial free, and learn what you're missing in the rest of the media. While you're there, please give us a, uh, a, a, kind, uh, a kind review, a kind rating over there to help other people, make it a little easier for other people to find us as well. You can email me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. You can and should follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.